God's house together. It's good to be worshiping, celebrating who He is, even in the midst of it all, that He is good, that He is God, that He is in control. We are continuing to think about this, this, this book, this library of books, this thing that gathers dust in many people's houses, bestseller. It's a bestseller. It's not allowed in the bestseller lists because it sells better than any other book than any book that we have going, it always tops the scales. But many are bought as gifts just to be left. You know, oh, that's nice. Someone's bought me a Bible. We give out youth Bibles for the, the kids going up to TGIS. We give out, you know, Bibles to the kids as they come into Sunday, Sunday Club. And how often do we dig deep into it? And how often do we let what this says, not what the world says, not what even the church says, influence, because the church sometimes gets it wrong. But I firmly believe that this book here never gets it wrong. And that is the point of today's message. And that's what we want to share with you today. One, that you get stuck into it, that you wrestle with it, you chew on it. You, you know, like cows chew the cud, you know, and, and regurgitate. That's a lovely image, isn't it? And, and, and how we work, that's, that's, I think that's what we have to do. We have to ruminate on God's Word. We have to meditate on it. We have to chew on it. We have to wrestle with it. Sometimes we have to, to bring it up again and, and chew over it again and then and, and really get fed on it. This is spiritual food for us. I don't know if, if you're like me, but I don't like to miss a meal. I don't like to skip breakfast. I, we had waffles this morning. They were amazing. If I do say so myself, I made them, so that's why I'm saying it. I'm not sure if anyone else is. But we don't want to skip a meal, do we? We want to be fed. And, and if this is spiritual food, if this is the stuff that gives us strength to face the world and all that it throws at us, then we need to eat and drink deeply. The Bible, I believe, is absolutely trustworthy and no mistakes. I don't know if you've ever watched Incredibles. Peter, my Peter, what, what's the name of the girl that says no capes in Incredibles? Edna, Edna, isn't it? It's Edna. Edna says no capes to the, to the uh, superheroes. And, and I want to say to you this morning, as Edna says, no mistakes, no mistakes. There is no mistakes. There are, there are maybe tiny little issues with little transliterations here and there. But this book has no mistakes, and, and in this short message, I just want to share it with you. But of course, we need to ease you up and settle you in with a wee, wee gag. And there was a guy who wanted a horse, and he went, he saw a horse online, and he went to the, the owner to buy it. And the owner was a minister. He was a minister of the Church of Scotland, and he had trained up his horse to say that rather than, you know, kick on and, and use the reins and all that stuff, what he said was, to make the horse go, you say, thank God. And for when you want it to stop, you say, amen. You got that? Thank God to go, amen, to stop. So, he went out for a run. He went out for a run on, on the coastline. 
And he, and he got the horse going. He said, thank God. And the horse went like a shot, just tore off, just flying. And he was hanging on for dear life. He saw the cliff coming. He saw the cliff coming. And for the life of him, he could not remember what the word was to make the horse stop. But eventually he got it. And just before the edge, he said, amen, amen. And the horse stopped on the edge. He wiped his fevered brow and he said, thank God. <laughs> we, we make mistakes, don't we? If we're honest, I, full confession, I am a sinful man. I make mistakes too often. And if you're honest, you probably do the same. But God doesn't. No mistakes. Here's the problem. If I asked you truthfully this question, can you trust the Bible 100%? I wonder what your answer would be. And I wonder why that would be your answer. Last week, we, Kay was telling us how the Word was God-breathed, inspired. Today, we want to think about how our Scriptures are inspired, but how they're inerrant, that is, without error, how it was all part of God's purpose and plan to reveal Himself through through this word, through these books that are over 1,500 years old in the making from over 50, 40 different writers. We're going to read just a short passage from Hebrews 6, which is the writer of the Hebrews writing to the, the Jewish Christians, affirming them of the story from how, from the beginning, from Abraham through to Jesus through to the end, that God has a plan and a purpose that can be trusted. When God made His promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so, after waiting patiently, we've heard already this morning, Abraham received what was promised. People swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of His purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, He confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner Jesus has entered on, before, on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. We could go into Melchizedek, but we'll, we'll leave it there. But basically, that God is true to His Word. So when we say that the Bible is without error, it's important to recognize that we're talking from the original manuscripts written by the authors of the books down through the ages to what we have here. On papyrus scrolls that were first written, they were very delicate. The, the authors wrote the, the Gospels, the authors wrote the prophecies, all the Old Testament, all the New Testament, they were written down. But of course, they didn't have photocopiers in those days. They didn't have printing press in those days. Gutenberg hadn't invented his printing press yet. And so, it was down to folks who had 
people who had hands and, and, and pens, fountain pens, I'm not sure what the pens were, but they scraped into the scrolls, and they copied what had been written. And they copied, and they copied, and they copied again and again. And the scribes and the monks who did this were meticulous in their work. Now, as you're hearing this, you're like, well, surely there must have been some mistakes. Surely there must have been someone who, who did the wrong word here or there. But actually, this isn't the case. Those who copied the manuscripts treated them quite rightly as the Word of God, and everything was to be exact. And you know what? They were. The fascinating thing was all these copies were exact. Now, Keith, you're saying, how can you say that? Well, I'm glad you asked. You know, we have over 5,800 Greek manuscripts to compare with, which is a huge number when compared to ancient books. So, my contention is this book we have here is what the authors of the little books in here wrote. And how do we know this? Well, the research is called textual criticism, and it it's, includes the number of copies of the early texts that we have today, but also the time gap from whence they were written. So, the more manuscripts and the less of a time gap, the more reliable. Does that make sense? Are you with me? Are you with me? If there's more manuscripts and there's less time between the earliest manuscript and when it was written, then we know we can trust it. For example, Herodotus wrote in 500 BC, the earliest manuscript we have is 900 AD, and it's 1,300 years of a time gap, and there's only eight manuscripts, only eight copies. Tacitus, he has a thousand-year gap and 20 copies. Julius Caesar, his Gallic Wars, written between 60 and 50 BC, and the manuscripts that we have for that, the copies we have for that, are 10. And no historian doubts Julius Caesar existed and wrote this. Then we come to Jesus. We come to the New Testament that was written between 40 and 100 AD. And the earliest copies we have are from 130 AD, 30 years, 30 years the gap. The entire New Testament, we have an entire New Testament from 350 AD. So, that's still a couple hundred years, but in the, in the long textual criticism history, that is a almost tiny time. So, we know what we have is the same as what we have then, but also that it's reliable and it's trustworthy. We can be very confident of the accuracy, authenticity, and integrity of the New Testament as it has been passed down to us today, much more so than other historical documents that have been taken for granted. Why is this important? Why is this important for you and me? Well, my view is if we acknowledge the reliability of the Bible, then we need to make a decision about this Bible. We need to make a decision about this book that we proclaim as the Word of God. Now, I'm just going to dig a little bit deeper into this because we, we went to Israel and we got to go to this place 
Qumran, very close to the Dead Sea, just, just down the way from the Dead Sea. I still have images of certain people floating in the Dead Sea. It's still in my mind. It's, it's, it's a lovely picture. But at Qumran, they found the Dead Sea Scrolls. I don't know if you know the story behind the Dead Sea Scrolls. It's fascinating. But uh, a wee shepherd boy, a Bedouin shepherd boy, found in clay pots in a cave in the back, kind of hanging down in the back, tucked away, were all these manuscripts of Old Testament writings. They have the entire book of Isaiah in these manuscripts. And these manuscripts that were found in a cave in the 50s, last 1950s, found in a cave are exactly the same as the ones we have in our book today. I'll just let that sink for a wee minute. The stuff that was found in a cave that had been tucked away thousands of years ago is the same as what we have today. No real difference. The process has been accurate. It means we can be confident that the Word of God is trustworthy. It has been passed through the ages and not altered, not changed, and we can build our lives upon it. So what am I saying? Well, my father, his word is his bond. If my dad says something, he will do it. If my dad says he's going to be there, he will be there. He was a, a policeman. He served as a policeman for all, almost 40 years, more than 40 years. He retired as a chief inspector, and he wasn't a bent copper. I, I don't know if you've been watching Line of Duty. He was not a bent copper. He, he, he towed the line. He did what was needed. He always stood up, for, and he still stands up for truth. And, and growing, up with, growing up with a man like that was brilliant. I knew I could trust him, but also it meant that he had a, if he had a hard, hard word for me, if he had a word for me that needed to be spoken, he would say it, and I w knew exactly where I stood. My dad, for the most part, I mean, he's human, but he keeps his promises. He's true to his word. God our Father, God our Father is true to his word also. When we turn to his written word, we know that this is God-breathed, God-inspired, and God is true to his word. So let's think about this trustworthiness of this book, this, what I think is a living, breathing book. What makes, what makes someone trustworthy? How do you judge trustworthiness? You're thinking of someone right now who you know is trustworthy. What are the words that you associate with that person? Well, they're consistent usually, aren't they? They're straightforward. They're honest. They're reliable. If they say they're going to do it, they will do it, and you can count to them. You are thinking of that person right now, but also you're thinking of someone who's maybe not quite so trustworthy that you, <laughs> you kind of go, actually, yes, that one, not so much that one. Um, do I need my sofa lifted? Uh, do I need a hand moving that washing machine? Who am I going to ask? I'm going to go there every time. The trustworthiness of someone's word 
is a reflection of their character. You trust them because of what they've done and what they've said, because they've done it consistently again and again. They have been true to their word, and you trust them. I wonder what people say about you. I wonder what people say about me. In Numbers 23, verse 19, it says these words, God is not human that he should lie, not a human being that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? You see, this ties in with word and character. Scripture is the word of God that reflects the character of God. God is truthful. God is reliable. God is faithful, righteous, all-knowing, all-powerful. That is why we can trust every word of the Bible, because it's been God-breathed. Even when we think it's difficult or it contradicts itself, as you wrestle with it, I think you get understanding. For example, one of the famous um, mistakes that was proposed by, by certain theologians was that Luke had got it wrong in his description of the census when Jesus was born. You know how Jesus, you know that story, you've heard it before, haven't you? He goes to Bethlehem because of a census. You might have heard that every year at Christmas. And there is this bit where Luke speaks of Quirinius, who was the governor of Syria. And, and people, people, theologians, know-alls, maybe, I'm <laughs> not saying that, but they say, well, Quirinius is, there's no record of a Quirinius as governor of Syria in those days. So Luke is clearly wrong, therefore the Bible is clearly wrong. But archaeology has discovered an inscription that proves without doubt that Quirinius was governor of Syria from about 6 AD, and that was when he ordered the census. So we have examples that we think maybe are wrong, but actually as you dig in deeper are proved correct. God is trustworthy, and so is His Word. I wonder tomorrow if you've arranged to pick someone up from the train station can you say to them, 100%, I guarantee you, I will be there at 10 o'clock to pick you up? Of course you can't, can you? Because anything could happen. You could step out of the church and fall down the slippery steps and break a leg. Anything could happen. Your car might get a puncture. Anything could happen. You cannot, you cannot guarantee 100% that you are going to be there. No. There are things that are out of our control. But that's not the case for God. Hebrews 6, verse 18, it's impossible for God to lie. We who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for our soul, firm and secure. God has given us an unshakable hope and promise. He does not lie. It's impossible for Him. Proverbs 30, verse 5 says, every word of God is flawless, and He's a shield to those who take refuge in Him. And what are you looking for in a refuge? You know, if you were, in a, if you were up in the highlands and there was a storm hit, and you saw that there was two bothies, and one bothy was a, a wooden shack that was kind of nailed together with bits of glue, and there was a concrete bunker, you know where everyone would be going. You'd be diving into that concrete bunker because it is secure. It is giving you strong protection. It's stable. That's what refugees are looking for when they want to get 
into any other country. They're escaping from the horrors of some storm, and they're wanting refuge. They're wanting strength, stability, security. That's what we're all looking for, isn't it, folks? We're all looking for that, and God is our refuge. Our scripture that we have is Jesus' scripture. And when, when he was attacked by his opponents, he reminded them that God's word cannot be broken, and it will come to pass. He will fulfill his promises. We see that in Jesus. We see that in what Jesus has done for us. We see that as how he's fulfilled God's will for us. On the cross, he died for us. There's no mistakes. No mistakes. Because God doesn't make mistakes. If it's God's word, then it will continue to come true as it's shown in the past and it will show again. Jesus, as he prayed in John 17, said these words, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Let us feed on his truth to be sanctified. So how does this apply in our day-to-day -day lives? How does this set out our day-to-day -day lives? Well, we need to remember 2 Timothy chapter 3. God's Word makes us wise for salvation, and it's used to correct, rebuke, mold, confront, comfort, strengthen, and shape us, because it is the truth, and the truth is good for us. Romans 12 verse 2, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, His perfect, His pleasing will. Start with 10 minutes. Start with 10 minutes at least. <laughs> but if you're struggling with it, start with 10 minutes in a quiet room where no one's going to bother you and read His Word. Start with the gospel. If you're needing a, a wee kickstart again, start with John's gospel and read it for 10 minutes a day. Wrestle with it. Chew it. It's food for the soul. Let's not miss this spiritual food. Let's not miss a meal. John Stott said these words, a wonderful theologian. One of the clearest evidences of a spirit-filled life is a hunger for Scripture. As followers of Jesus, we need His Word in us to keep us straight, to reshape us when we sin or when we doubt or when we believe the lies that the world has fed us. I, 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 I can't remember. It, it might have been, it's, it's one of these movies. It's one of these movies, you know, where they've got the, the axes and the swords and they're in a battle and all sorts of stuff. And, and, and the swords get bent out of shape. As, as they're hitting people and doing horrible things, the sword gets bent out of shape. And, and what they used to do in olden days was they had to, I guess the metal wasn't too strong, but what they would do is use their teeth to get the sword back in a, a straight sword shape. And I wonder if you and I, we sometimes get bent out of shape 
I think sometimes we, we maybe we, we attack other people, or maybe folks are having a go at us, or maybe the world is just on top of us, and we just feel a little bit bent out of shape. God is the one who brings us back and reshapes us for the battle. One of the key verses in my kind of spiritual life is Proverbs 3, verse 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understandings, and He will make your path straight. Let Him shape you. You might not have to do it with His teeth, but if you feed on His Word, He will keep you on His path, the straight path. Because the Bible's not just a handy, it's not just a handy set of hints or tips that we can take or leave. It is the revelation of the creator, sustainer, redeemer, judge, and king of the universe. The Westminster Shorter Catechism says, what is the point of the Scriptures? It's to teach about God and what duty is required from us. And Jesus is the key for interpreting what we read. Jesus is the supreme revelation of God. How do we know what Jesus, how do we know what God is like? We look to Jesus. Where do we find Him? We find Him in here. This, this thing, this, this mad book that's got so much amazing stuff in it is a love letter from God, from Abraham and the promises given Abraham to the city of God at the end of time. It is a love letter from God to you and me. And its purpose is to bring us into relationship with Jesus. The more we trust, the more we will understand. Remember the analogy of the jigsaw I used a few weeks ago? You know how you get the outsides and then you begin to work in. It's almost like God has given us this jigsaw that we have to work at and put all together. But also it might be a crossword. You know, you get one clue and then you fill in the next clue and then you fill in the next, and you begin to get the picture. The more we trust, the more we understand. But we need to spend time on it. And I guess the real question is not just that will we trust this, but will we obey it? Will we obey what God has spoken? There's a story of a chief of police, Phil Keith was his name, he was a police chief of Knoxville in Tennessee. And he was giving a, a televised press conference. And he had his mobile in his pocket, and it, it started ringing. So he reached in his pocket, and he realized it was his mother phoning. Now, mom wouldn't phone unless it was an emergency. So he stepped back, and he went off microphone, and he answered his mom. And his mom, he said, Mom, are you okay? What's wrong? And she said <laughs> these words. Phil, are you chewing gum? And he stopped and he paused and went, yes, ma'am. Spit it out. It's very rude. So he did. <laughs> he spat it out and put it away. And he said, thanks, mom, and hung up. And it struck me that, that you know, God is speaking. God has spoken. God continues to speak by His Spirit to each one of us at home and in here. God is continuing to speak. Will we listen? And will we do what our Father says? Will we obey? Because we could just read this 
say, that's great, shut it and walk off. Will we obey what our Father is calling us to do? Obedience is a tough thing. But when you trust the one who's calling you to follow, you will follow. You see, God is calling. God is calling to you. God is calling to me. We can trust him and this love letter. Will we let him lead us? Let's pray. Father, we want to hear your voice more clearly. Help us to find that quiet times to dive into your word, to chew on it, to ruminate on it, to meditate on it. And as you speak, Lord, I pray that we will obey, that we will trust and obey, for there is no other way. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.